we don't follow the specifics of the liturgical calendar that much here at Emmanuel. I mean, a little bit, the big bullet points, but the specific days, not so much. But one of those specific days was on Friday, and it was called the Epiphany of the Lord. It's the day that the, the church has kind of celebrated the revelation of God's light to the Gentiles, where the first Gentiles to experience the presence of Jesus, the three wise men, are kind of celebrated on that particular day. And, and it starts sort of a season of epiphany that keeps us going and uh, pretty much until Lent. But the Sunday before Lent starts, the Sunday before Ash Wednesday, this is really some schooling in the liturgical calendar, by the way, but... <laughs> The Sunday before Ash Wednesday is called the Transfiguration of the Lord. So the season of Epiphany is sort of bracketed by these two big events that identify two different aspects of Jesus' central ministry and his nature. The baptism of the Lord, which is largely about his humility, his humanness, his choice to enter into everything and even our, our sinful environment and submit to a baptism for the repentance of sin, and also his ultimate and complete divinity. The transfiguration is really the story of the, the glory of Jesus as the second person of the Trinity coming into view of the disciples. And so these two Sundays kind of bracket this season of revelation, this season of epiphany, this season of God revealing himself to us, and bracket it with that notion of the divine inhabiting humanity and descending, as Colleen read to us from Philippians 2, and also the way in which humanity is welcomed into the glorious presence of God, literally humanity welcomed into the heart of God as God reveals himself in all of his holiness to us. It's a really big theological idea, and you're going to have to forgive me because for the next week's I'm going to be talking about a lot of big theological ideas that are wrapped up in the big, big idea of the, the incarnation. What, what happens when God becomes human and begins to teach us in the person of Jesus and asks us to follow and invites us to transformation? It's a big theological idea, but more than that, the revelation is really about how something far more kind of imminent to us, far more close to us. The revelation is about how relationship is at the very heart of the purposes of God, that God created us for relationship with himself and, and with one another. To just kind of round out this introductory comment about why we're preaching on what we're preaching on during this time, we're preaching the story as Matthew tells it, because in the common lectionary, which is a reading of the Bible that has you kind of look at the whole Bible every year, it's a three-year cycle that kind of takes you through the wholeness of, of scriptures. Well, this year, the gospel reading for the lectionary is taken from Matthew's gospel. And so we'll be looking at passages that speak to the character of God's revelation of himself in Jesus, his son, specifically out of the book of Matthew. And each of the gospel writers tell the story a little bit differently Matthew, as we saw last week, especially as we looked at chapter 2, tells it in terms of the way in which Jesus addresses and overcomes the powers of this world. But today we look at the story of his baptism as Matthew tells it. So we're looking at the entirety of chapter 3 in the Gospel of Matthew. 
In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him, and all of the region among the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when John saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for it is proper in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Lord, help us to apprehend this pronouncement of belovedness that you laid upon your son and help us to listen to him. For we pray in his name. Amen. My brain works strangely when I'm preparing a sermon and I just, I think it's because my preaching professor used to say, find one theme and take it out and just look at it forwards and backwards and from the reverse side and from the front and just whatever comes to mind, think about those things and see if there's any anything in what you're thinking that, that might uh, have some bearing on this sermon. And, and as I did that work this week, a rhyme came to mind of the rhyme that you hear brides talking about before they get married, that on their wedding day, they need to wear a certain set of things, something old, something new, something, and something. I have no idea what the blue thing is about, but there's a, there's a final line that says, and a sixpence in your shoe, right? Did I forget any of it? Those of you that know, okay. Well, it's just a rhyme, and it's basically an old English rhyme not that old actually but older than me uh, and uh, it's kind of a superstitious thing you know it's it's wear this stuff and it will it will bring you good fortune you know uh, have these things 
as a part of your day and you will have good luck and a successful marriage. It speaks of what will ensure that good luck and prosperity and sort of advises a particular set of lucky charms that you're supposed to adorn yourself with on your wedding day. But I think something else is going on here as well. And something that is easy to forget in a season where we think more about the moment than we think about the historical context in which we're set. I think what is happening is on this day when a new thing is happening, what that rhyme does is say recognize and live into the bigger story in which your new story is set. Because it's a brand new thing that's taking place. What you and your husband are doing by taking these vows. It's, it's a brand new family that's going to be made. In fact, I, I have heard it said that in Israel, in ancient Israel, the only thing that could stop the king's procession through the city was a wedding procession. That the king himself deferred to wedding processions because they were the future of the nation, so to speak. They were a celebration of the ongoing history of the nation. I don't know whether that's true. I heard some preacher say it once, so um, it might not be. But we all just participate in plagiarism, basically, in order to do our craft. But, but I think that's what that rhyme is about. Set your new story in the context of the bigger story that started long before you were ever around and will continue long after you are gone. Something new is happening, but this new thing is a part of an ancient rite engaged by many who have gone before you. In all this newness, there is something really old going on that has been going on long before you and will continue to go on long after you. So recognizing this truth is a kind of epiphany about the new things that we do in our lives that my new thing fits into a a grand story, that I get to be a part of something bigger than myself. And the newness I am experiencing, the new song that I'm singing today is a chorus in a song that has been sung since the beginning of time. The song of relationship that God sings at Eden in creating humanity. The phrase I like to use to describe this, which is all the way through the scriptures, is the experience of significant insignificance. (laughs) That I'm a little speck in the grand scheme of things, but I am a part of the grand scheme of things. I am insignificant, but also significant in that I am included. I get to join in the song. Significant insignificance. And the story of John the Baptist's encounter with Jesus is an example of this dynamic, of John happening to be present at this moment of epiphany, this experience of connecting with the big, big story, and yet him playing just a little part in it. There's lots of echoes in this tale of Jesus' baptism in Matthew's description of it, lots of echoes of an old, old story 
and the continuation of a story of which Jesus' baptism is a part. And I just want to point that out. The first one is the message that Matthew tells us that John was proclaiming is the message that all prophets have proclaimed since there were ever prophets, which is repent, turn around. God's following. God's in your midst. Turn around, take note of that. Repent and believe the good news that God has come near. The kingdom of God is among you. Then Matthew also quotes for us from one of the ancient prophets, Isaiah. He gives us lines from Isaiah 40 and sees John the Baptist's ministry as a part of a, of a bigger kind of prophetic ministry that was going on long before John was ever thought of by any other human being that was living. He also points out that John was kind of like Elijah because he dressed in the same way. He had the same kind of austere lifestyle, locusts and honey. I've never eaten a locust. I have had wild honey. But, uh, you know, that there was just that sense of, of John's ascetic and austere lifestyle that he wore this camel hair cloak and like a Nazarite lived off the land, was sort of a monk, if you will, one who was apart from society but proclaimed his message to society just like Elijah. And John's warning is like the warning of all the prophets. Don't rest on your laurels of your religious identity and say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, aren't we wonderful? Because God can raise up children of Abraham out of these stones. So don't rest on your privilege. The prophets love to tell that message. The other thing that John is doing is taking a very, very normal and well-known rite Ritual purification by means of water, something that would happen in the temple, something that you could probably pay your money for and go in and get clean, spiritually clean as well as physically clean, I suppose, something that the temple sold. And John has taken that ministry out to the Jordan. He's taken it to a place that's also very familiar. It's the place of entry into the promised land. It's the place where in some ways the relationship to start to fulfill God's promise takes place, the crossing over the Jordan in, in Israel's history. And this sense of this is, this is more than just a ritual that you pay for in the temple. This is something that ought to inform or demonstrate an internal transformation that takes place in your life, a brand new thing that is going on. So all of these echoes are from an old, old story. All of these things are in the Old Testament. All of these things just scream at you. If you have any awareness of what's in the Old Testament, you see that, that Matthew is just ticking things off and letting you know that John's a part of something bigger than himself. Echoes of an old story, but letting those old things help one to see the new thing that is happening in Jesus, helping John to see that God is coming near. You know, one of the things that happened in John's day, and this is the thing about history of, of the time, actually in that first century, is that, that John was much more well-known than Jesus. Jesus was kind of a, an odd itinerant rabbi who was going around teaching and saying things that made people scratch their heads. And John was out there in full theater 
letting them know that they were screwing up and that God wanted them to change. And people loved it. People loved the theater of it. They went out to see him. He was extremely popular. It's the reason why Herod put him in prison and refused to have him killed until he, his narcissism got him in trouble and, and then he had him beheaded. But people were streaming out to this because it was a, a message that was awakening from them from sleep. It was something that sounded fresh. It was this reminder to move away from their inattention, to move away from their mundane practice of religion and to begin to see that God actually wanted relationship with them. So they, they came out and listened to this call to their transformation, to this being told that they're a brood of vipers, a bunch of little snakes fleeing from the fire. Even the Pharisees came out and received this baptism. John was calling them to transformation, and that was a popular message. And it's really not a new message. But yet another prophetic voice calling them to wake up and turn around and recognize that God is with them. And yet they heard it as if for the first time, which is so often true is that the message is something that we could quote from memory, but when we hear it and it strikes our heart, we know it as if for the first time. And then John himself has an epiphany in this moment, a revelation, an awareness of how special this encounter is. His significant insignificance is his encounter with Jesus. Significance and insignificance come together in his big ministry, his popular ministry, the thing that even Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote about, the thing that Herod cared about, the thing that was popular even among the religious officials. This big ministry fades into the background as he becomes aware that he is merely a part of something that's even bigger. And he has that awareness when Jesus comes to him. This one whom he called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus comes to him to be baptized. And John says, Ooh, I don't think I'm qualified for this one. It's I that should be baptized by you. And Jesus says something very interesting to him. He says, yeah, yeah, but do it anyway. Accept this aberration, this thing that you don't think is acceptable. Accept it for now in order to fulfill all righteousness. God seeks relationship with his creation. And so God enters into that creation in a very, very physical way. So no, you don't need to be baptized by me right now. You need to baptize me in order to demonstrate this. It's okay, John, let it be so for now. It doesn't affirm your expectations about the way the hierarchy of God is supposed to work, but God is more interested in relationship than he is in having you affirm his higher place. This is a bigger story, John. And in this moment, this is your role within that story, so let it be so for now. And then comes the confirmation. 
the moment of epiphany. And Matthew is not clear who actually sees the heavens open and who actually hears the voice of God. But we know Jesus does because that's what Matthew is clear about. The baptism happened. John is close at hand. Perhaps he saw and heard, perhaps he didn't. But what he knows for certain is that the kingdom of God has come near, that the message that he was proclaiming has come to be. The heavens open, the spirit descends like a dove, and the voice of the Father says what the Gospels all have him say. This is my son, the beloved, and with him I am well pleased. You know, God the Father only speaks twice in the Gospels in the New Testament, and both times he says the same thing. He says it here, and he says it at the Transfiguration, which is what will end our series. It's a word of affirmation at this scene that tells the truth of the bigger story. This bigger story that has been in the telling since creation itself. That God has come near. That God desires relationship with his creation. The story that's told in Genesis, but also the story that's told in Revelation, when in one of the final chapters of Revelation, it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with humanity. God entered into our experience and made space in his heart for us. God took on our brokenness and so made us whole. And Paul says it well, and I end with what Colleen read earlier. Although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited, but emptied himself taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, bring us into that place of epiphany, that place where we see our small portion of the big, big story. And so put in our mouths the song that you sang at the beginning, the song that will be sung long after we are gone, the song that we belong body and soul in life and in death, not to ourselves, but to you and that you have made space for us in your heart. And we thank you for that and pray gratefully in the name of Jesus. Amen.